Our message this morning is that, as you can see on the screen, are you tired of being tired? Phew, I think I'll make it. But there are several passages of scripture that I want to reference to give us our setting for this. Are you tired of being tired? But up front, to simply say that as the message goes along, under each point, there will be a little sub-point, and those come from Robert McGee's book, Search for Significance, and those four little sub-points are what he calls Satan's snares. And that's what we're talking about, and that is the way that Satan can just absolutely catch us and wear us out. As you can see there on the screen, basically there's three types of fatigue. There's mental fatigue, where we've got a lot on our mind. There's physical fatigue, where we are not just up as strong or as rested as we would like to be. But the message here is all about spiritual fatigue. And that's what Jesus, a great part of his ministry came to address. And that is people who absolutely were exhausted, weary, scattered, and discouraged in their heart's desire, their heart's desire for a personal relationship with Almighty God. And here's where the passages come in. I have preached before from Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, a beautiful passage. It says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is not speaking here about a day's work on a job. He is talking about being absolutely worn out by the religion of their day. And I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest. There's the word again for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the early passages of Jesus' ministry that always touches my heart, and that is, is also, it is noted there, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, as Jesus is moving forward with his preaching ministry, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary. Some translations say harassed. They were weary and scattered and afraid and anxious. And I am paraphrasing those words and amplifying them. But you can imagine it because he says they are like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Other passages, which I will simply paraphrase, in those Beatitudes, as I mentioned a moment ago, Matthew chapter 5, the first one says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor means those who recognize their need for Almighty God, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in their life. Later in that beatitude, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a right relationship with God, for they shall be filled. Luke 4, 18, the mission statement of Jesus, that he has come to proclaim liberty to the oppressed. And I just found it so wonderfully exciting 
The little footnote at the bottom referred me to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, and we just finished studying Daniel. And this is a statement of the promise of God to Daniel that the 70 years of captivity in Babylon is coming to an end, and they're going to be delivered from that sin. And Jesus is saying, I am here, and my mission is to deliver you from that oppression. But probably the one of the most precious and a beautiful devotional book comes out of it is in Psalm 42, verses 1 in the first part of verse 2. As the deer pants for water, my heart pants for Almighty God. I thirst for you, O God. Are you tired of being tired? The fatigue here of that day, and I believe the fatigue of our day, is our heart's desire, our heart's need for that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, how I pray. How I pray in a world that's weary, a world that's scattered. A world that hungers and thirsts for that which they do not know they hunger and thirst for. And that is a right relationship with you and right relationships around the world. We hunger and thirst for peace and for well-being. We hunger and thirst for that shalom. We hunger and thirst to be able to sing with victory and assurance it is well with my soul. And I pray in these few moments, Lord Jesus, I pray in these few moments that you will touch the deepest part of our being and give us rest. Rest in you. Forgive us of our sins. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The points here come from a paraphrase of that significance, search for significance. But in my study, they seem to explain just perfectly what was going on in the day that Jesus walked upon the face of the earth. And it has not changed because the hunger, the ache, the need of hearts 2,000 years ago are the same as they are today. The hunger and need of hearts 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, where we believe is the time of Abraham, is hungering and thirsting for God and for spiritual relief and spiritual rest, and our heart is panting for that. And so here's the questions. Here's the questions, and that is, based upon those Satan snares, number one, are you tired of trying to be good? Satan's snare here, as Robert McGee says, this is the performance trap. I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. One of the incredible, wonderful, clear passages on this is what we call the rich young ruler. And in Mark chapter 10, and I want to share those verses, and I I know that you will follow every thought about there. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22, as Jesus was going out the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. 
and I didn't count these earlier, one, two, three, four, five, six. That's amazing. Of the Ten Commandments, the first four has to do with our relationship with God and the rest of them have to do with our relation with one another. And the young ruler, I don't know if he's interrupting Jesus, but I know he's very excited at this moment and he says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And this is one of the precious verses of scripture in my heart. Then Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here is a young man who unquestionably is good. He's good, he's a good person. But whether we realize it or not, he is also a spiritually exhausted person. You say, how do you conclude that? Because no matter how good he is, he's still concerned about his eternal security, amen? No matter how he has honored the commandments, and he's either really good or he's kind of faking it, amen? He's the best person I ever ran into. He is, he is really, really good, but he, has, he is not at peace in his heart. He's not so sure that when his day is coming that he has eternal life. He's just not so sure of this. And he is troubled about it. And so he goes to Jesus, this young man who has kept all of the commandments and wants to know what more is there. I want that peace in my heart. I'll always remember there are so many instances in my ministry. But early one Sunday morning, I was called to a home where there had been the loss of a loved one, elderly gentleman. And as I sat there, his daughter said to me, she said, you know, Brother Bill, I don't ever remember my dad going to church. I don't ever remember it. But he was a good man. And this was not the preacher's conclusion. She looked at me and she said, but you know, Brother Bill, there's no demand in heaven for good men. Saved people, amen? What is the problem here with this young man? The problem with him is he has religion without a relationship. And that was the whole problem of that day. And I have to be honest to the context, nothing here about any kind of discriminatory statement, but that was the whole problem with Israel, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people and Judaism and that is, they were trying to be good. They were trying for eternal security. They were trying to know in their heart that they were right with God, but they didn't have a relationship with him. Did not have a relationship with him. I've had a lot of things said to me during the years. I always remember, and I say I always remember. Man, my age, that's a scary word right there when I tell you how much I remember, but I do. Some of these things I'll never forget, I pray. But I was doing a revival in a small church and back then the kind of the tradition was that whoever was preaching the revival, they expected him to get out during the afternoon and visit people that they couldn't reach. Amen. <laughs> like, you know, Brother Bill can't get him, nobody can, you know. And so I was out, I was way out down a country road and, and sand up to your ankles and 
good old boy there and I'm inviting him to the revival. And, and I mean, he just laid it on the line. He said, well, I'll tell you, Brother Bill says, if there's one thing I hate, it's hypocrites. And he said, and, and I, I'm gonna go to that church one day, but I, I'm not going up there until I know I can do it. That's a quote. I'm not going up there until I know that I can do it. What was his problem? He wanted to be good without Jesus. And it is impossible. And I'm gonna tell you, friend, I'd rather go to heaven imperfect than to go to hell believing I was perfect, amen? Hallelujah. And he said, I'm not going up there. I'm not going up there to that church until I know that I can do it. And what, what is the answer? That personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be good. Oh, the Apostle Paul, and because of the interest of time, I paraphrase these verses. You fact check me on them. I know I'm close, but in Romans chapter 7, verse 19, the Apostle Paul is crying out. He is crying out with this dilemma, he says, the good that I will, meaning his will, the good that I will to do, I don't. The evil that I don't will to do, I don't want to do, I do. And then he cries out in verses 24 and 25, O wretched man, what hope is there for me? Who will save me? And there's when he proclaims, but thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. I want to share something with you. If, it, if this hadn't been exciting thus far, this is fixing to get exciting. The choir sang the 23rd Psalm. I want to read to you the 23rd Psalm. And this just was revealed to me in preparing for this message. And that is... You'd think I'd put markers in my Bible, but I don't. 23rd Psalm, listen to this. This is the relationship we crave. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, rest. He leads me beside the still waters, rest. He restores my soul, rest. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, that which we hunger and thirst for, for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, eternal security. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Now this is the key verse, but I wanted to share the whole passage. Surely, goodness, goodness. We all want to be good and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh my goodness, what a pairing here. What a divine, anointed, inspired pairing in a personal relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and the way this was revealed to me is that is when I fail to be good, thank God mercy is there too, amen? Woo, friends. I read an old Scottish preacher that said, here comes the good shepherd and behind him his faithful collies, goodness and mercy. We're not good all the time, but his mercy is new every day, hallelujah. 
So why do we get wore out? Because we're trying to be good and it's not possible. Here's the second one. Are you tired of trying to be accepted? Accepted. Satan's snare here is, as McGee says, is we can become approval addicts. Meaning I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself. I still mention, after all these years, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Some new psychiatrists and psychologists have tried to tweak it some, but I don't think they can improve on it. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that basic need of every one of us to reach the height of our existence. Many times it is pictured in a pyramid and the bottom level is that of the physical, physiological needs of life. Food, water, shelter, air, clothes, that which we cannot exist without. Moving up the pyramid, the next level is that of safety. Now, this came out a long time ago and I love it. For safety, we're talking about security, meaning that I'm not afraid for my life, my well-being. It is meaning that we have resources. And he had in that list that we have a job. Good Lord of mercy. There'd be a lot more people happy in America if they'd get a job, amen? And it says, and if you own a little piece of property, then you feel secure. But right in the middle of that hierarchy is love and belonging. And every one of us needs friends. We need family. We need intimacy. We need connectedness. The next to the top is that of esteem, to be able to feel that we are a person of worth. And the top is self-actualization and I interpret it according to Christianity, and that is we are reaching our God-given potential. The problem here is a poor view of ourselves and a poor understanding of how others sees us and the answer of always trying to please other people is to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. When I pastored Central Baptist Church, when I went there, and I usually say the year, and I had someone tell me one time that I needed to quit marking time. But I went there in 1977. And people look at me and I tell them, I'm only 120 years old, give me a break, okay? But I was 26 when I went there. Now that was an intimidating situation, 26 years old going to Central Baptist Church as pastor. And in that church, still, there were incredible heroes of the faith. Baptist Village was just getting to go good and, and a lot of retired missionaries and a lot of church staff people would live there. Uh, we have so many more type facilities like that around now that we don't see that many that come into Baptist Village. And one of those was a precious lady named Aletha Bergman. Now I was 26, she was in her 80s. She had actually served on the staff at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis under R.G. Lee. Now, a lot of people don't even think about R.G. Lee. We associate Bellevue, I think, more with Adrian Rogers, which is a wonderful association. I went there in July of 77, and I have a Bible that I treasure 
that she gave to me in November of 77, just a few months later, with an inscription in it of appreciation for my ministry, and then a verse that I had never keyed in on from Ephesians chapter one, verse six, that says, we are accepted in the beloved. Almighty God said of his son Jesus, this is my beloved son. I want you to know, dear friends, no matter how much you crave the affirmation and the acceptance of other people, you will never, never, never feel accepted until you feel that love and acceptance of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're accepted by the beloved. And then that allows us to accept others. And when we accept others, they welcome us into their life. I love Edwin Markham's little verse entitled Outwitted. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary drew a circle and took us in. And we can draw a circle and take others in. Number three, spiritual fatigue, trying to be good. Spiritual fatigue, trying to live up to everybody's expectations of you. Number three, are you tired of condemning others? Condemning others. That was a hallmark of their religion that day. That's a hallmark of fundamentalism today, friends, I'm telling you, and legalism. Who can we condemn today? Who can we find something wrong with somebody today? How can I make myself feel better by finding something wrong with somebody else? That Satan's snare is the blame game, and that is those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. What's the problem here? The problem is a very poor concept of failure. And I, I love, and let me see if I can get it right, one of the phrases that failures need not be final Robert Shuler, and then John Maxwell, the great leadership guru, has a book entitled Failing Forward, and that is when we fail, we should learn from it and it should promote us forward in our life. But here, when we cannot forgive ourselves, we cannot forgive others, and the answer to this is to know in our hearts that we are forgiven that Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Studying one of the passages of Scripture, once more, one of these encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees, the scribes, the legalists, the fundamentalists of his day, they are taking some poor person apart. Jesus comes up and takes up for that person. Takes up for that person. And here's the difference. The legalist, the blamer, the one doing the condemning only sees the sin. Jesus sees the sinner.
Isn't that precious? Thank God Jesus does not just see what I've done. Jesus sees who I am. Jesus sees who I am and has compassion, compassion on me. I think about the story and a lot of the illustrations that I use come out of old preacher's books and many of them are set, set in Europe, Scotland, places like that. I don't think young preachers have very good illustrations. I don't know what the problem is, you know. I'm kidding. But I love this one. I see a little village in England. And I see these two men out walking one morning through the woods and they come across one of the individuals in their little village that is incredibly challenged. And I say these things nicely and he has passed out across the path in the woods. And in their mind and heart, they say, we ought to just leave him to here. We just, we just need to leave him here. There's no hope for this guy. We just need to leave him right here. But one of them said, no, let's take him to the priest. And so they helped him up and struggled and staggered to the home of the priest and knocked on the door. And when the priest opened the door, the two men said, we, we came upon him on a path in the woods and we decided to bring this wretched creature to you. And the priest said, Call no one wretched for whom Christ died. Glory to God. Call no one wretched for whom Christ died. I'm telling you, friend, fault-finding, condemning, always putting somebody else on display, it will wear you out and harden your heart. Amen? And they were tired. They were tired. They were tired. And then the last, are you tired of condemning yourself? Satan's snare here is shame. I am what I am. I cannot change. I am hopeless. Let me regroup before my time runs out. Our sound person will come to my office and say you were two minutes over, but we can squeeze it. And I think squeeze it. Well, that make me sound like Mickey Mouse on the radio, you know? But boy, we got a great team up there. This is what was going on in Jesus' day. They were weary. They were scattered. They were oppressed. They were laboring. They were under a burden. Their hearts cried out for God, but they did not have anything in place that could satisfy that, and Jesus came to satisfy that. There were people there who were trying desperately to be good. They were trying desperately to be accepted by the group. They were trying desperately to feel good about themselves by picking out the sins of other people. And some of them had things in their life that they just could not overcome. And they stayed away. They stayed in the shadows because of shame. But you remember that passage in Romans 7? The good that I will to do, I don't. The evil that I do not will to do, I do. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ in chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus and those who walk not after the flesh. And as I've shared with you, so often we do not follow popular verses with the next verse. 
John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Read the next verse. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might not be condemned. Two quick closings. There was anybody that should have ever hidden the shadows of shame It's the Apostle Peter denying Jesus in a vile, cursing way at times. But Jesus comes, calls him off separately. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to take care of my church. I want you to follow me and is restored. Paul, who became the great apostle, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, is trying to kill and destroy the church. God appears to him on that Damascus road and later sends word to him through Ananias, you are my chosen vessel. Isn't that something? A man like Saul, you are my chosen vessel to carry my word to kings and priests and nations and Gentiles. And I want to tell you, dear friend, and I know that we all here, we seek to be devoted to the Lord. But oh my goodness, whatever is back there, we can be God's chosen vessel. I love it. I love it. Are you tired of being tired? Well, the answer is simple. Come to Jesus. You walk right down this aisle and I will help guide you to accept Jesus Christ. James comes to lead us in the hymn of invitation. Will you come? Will you come to Jesus?